Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Blackhawks Talk Podcast. I am Charlie Romeliotis, joined by James Naveau. And James, full disclosure, Pat's not here because he's on vacation. And I will also not be here starting on Thursday because I will be on vacation. So so we are recording this on Monday at 11.23 specifically a.m. So we're prepping this in advance. Um, it's going to be a fun next few days, I guess, as the All-Star Weekend approaches. But James, how are we doing today? We had a little tech technological uh, issues leading up to this podcast, but we're good now. Well, yeah, we had a technical difficulty where my computer had to restart for one of those beloved Windows updates. But I'm also trying to figure out what day it actually is because I thought it was Wednesday. I'm going to have to reevaluate my entire schedule now. I know that we're not releasing this till later in the week, but you got Wait, me all sort of... You said it was Monday, and I don't think it is. Yeah, I actually... <laughs> Yeah, yep. you did. <laughs> I think I'm in vacation mode, James. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm unlike you fools. I have to continue working. So you know what like, I had in my mind. You know what? This is what I had in my mind. We're obviously doing the mailbag podcast today, and so we're answering your questions that you sent to us on Monday that we were going to record on Monday. But obviously, with the Bobby Hall passing, we decided right. to kind of push this off to later in the week. So. Did I do a good job of recovering or there not really? you go. Well, I thought you were thinking of uh, what we're going to be recording next week, but I think either explanation is uh, good. And besides, you're a handsome devil. You can pull <laughs> off anything. Oh, man, I don't know about that. Well, we do <laughs> want to get to your questions. Um, and let's start here with the first one. We kind of collected these in not, no, no particular order whatsoever. Um, so it starts with Tony. Uh, this is not our podcast producer, Tony. Um he says, other than the Blackhawks' own first-round pick, the one that's going to be the highest, who are some names to look for with the Tampa Bay first-round pick, the Hawks and Tampa's second-round pick, the Hawks and Dallas's third-round pick, et cetera? James, I don't know if we're going to get too deep into the, the third rounds, but maybe you know, who could the Blackhawks, which names could the Blackhawks target towards the end of that first round and early second when the Blackhawks do kind of whip around in the snake? You know, I always have kind of wanted the Blackhawks to go out and like target a player from the Chicago Steel. I feel like it would be a really easy slam dunk pick that you could, you know, sell as, you know, the hometown kid, even if the guy is, you know, not from around here, he at least like plays his junior hockey locally. And I think that a really good potential option for people who loved Alex to Brinkett and, you know, kind of have a, an affinity for undersized, speedy, high quality offensive players. Why don't they draft Jaden Perron? Like he's from, he's from Winnipeg. So not technically again, a Chicago guy. He's only five foot nine, weighs about one sixty, averaging about a point a game with the steel this season. I've seen some mock drafts having him toward the back end of the first round, maybe the beginning of the second round. I think that we all saw, the success that the Blackhawks had with Alex to drafting him in that early second round. I think that 
Jaden Perron, you know, has a lot of the intangibles that would be required to potentially be a strong NHL winger. I think the Blackhawks need to add some more offensive depth to their system. I haven't really been looking at a ton of blue liners for them just because of how heavily they've emphasized that in the recent past. So I think that Jaden Perron would be a really interesting guy for them to potentially look at. I also had kind of circled uh, Matthew Cataford, uh, plays currently in Halifax in the QMJHL. He's already scored 22 goals this season in 45 games. He's a really dynamic scorer, can play center, more likely profiles as a winger, but I think it'd be interesting to try him out at center. I don't really want to rule anything out considering you know some of the success or lack thereof that we've had with determining which guys can stick and which haven't, i.e. Max Domi. I thought he was probably going to end up at the wing at some point this season has not done that. And then one other guy that I kind of had circled is sort of like a late early to mid second rounder. So maybe grab with one of the picks from Tampa Bay or maybe the Blackhawks own uh, another forward from Minnesota, William Whitelaw. He plays in the USHL. I'm sure steel fans are familiar with him. He's averaging about a point a game this season already has 20 goals uh, for the phantoms. I, I think that, the key for them is just going to be to get bang for their buck in those spots. And I know this is a very deep draft class. I really want the Blackhawks to emphasize offensive punch. This is a team that's they struggle to score goals a lot. They haven't really been able to get a dynamic goal scorer into the system in recent years. I know that we have a lot of high hopes for Lucas Reichel, Frank Nazar and guys like that. It would not hurt to continue to go down that path. And so guys like, uh, like Perron and Whitelaw, I think would be really intriguing options for the Blackhawks in kind of that, you know, 25 to 45 pick range. Yeah. You laid out a lot of, a lot of names that are going to go in that range. I think the one thing that was interesting to me when kind of researching some potential back half of the first round, early second round names is I remember talking to it, you know, a, a scout a, a few months ago, trying to get a read of what the draft board might look like in 2023 as we kind of get closer. Um, and some of the names that I saw at the end of the first round now, um, back then a few months ago, they were in the conversation or they, you know, at the time of going in the mid first round, maybe even early, um, you know, like in the eight to 12 kind of range. And so now I see like, for example, a guy like Charlie Strammel, who's in, in uh, Wisconsin, forward that can really play all three forward positions like he's projected i guess to go in the at the end of the first round as in some uh, mock drafts and he's a guy that was mentioned early on a few a few months ago and i was talking to this source that he could go in the mid first round maybe even in the 12 to 14 range so it'll be interesting to see i think when you look at the draft class and how um the upper echelon of this draft class with the bedards and fantillis and mitch goff and carlson it really pushes all the other higher quality names down. So now it's like maybe you might be getting a quality player in the six to 10 range or, you know, the, the players that are going to be taken at the end of the first round, maybe in another normal year, those are mid first round picks. So I think the Blackhawks are in a pretty fortunate position, um, especially their own first round pick. Like let's just say, or their, their own uh, draft pick. Let's just say they finish inside the top three. If they whip, they're going to whip around and then get, either 33, 34, 35. Uh, so they'll be the very first picks of the, the second round that that basically will qualify as a, an 
end of the first round pick in, in a lot of some other drafts. So right. I think that's encouraging um, for Chicago that they they do they are in a position where they're going to have some some higher end picks here um, in the 2023 draft class. Let's move on to Maria. She says, how many players get moved before the deadline? How many Blackhawks get moved before the deadline? Let's let's here. Let me let Man. me rephrase this question. <clears throat> I'm going to set the over under at four and a half Blackhawks. Would you take the over or the under on that? Based on the Bo Horvat return, you almost have to take the under because teams are potentially going to struggle to move some of these contracts. I mean, Bo Horvat had a contract worth what five and a half million dollars and the Islanders. Yeah, they got, they had to give up a conditional first round pick to get Bo Horvat. But outside of that, I didn't really think that the, the, the payout really wasn't that high on Bo Horvat. And we all had kind of looked at him as this kind of, you know, market setting type dude, kind of a higher end player that was going to be available at this deadline. And the Canucks pulled the trigger on a deal that I think disappointed quite a few people. And of course, you know, got the guffaws based on how they handled Bruce Boudreaux and Rick Tockett. But we're going to leave that for another, you know, mailbag question, perhaps, or, you know, another podcast. I think that I would take the under for the Blackhawks, not because I think that there aren't plenty of teams who would be interested in players that the Blackhawks have. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to be really difficult to maneuver the cap to fit some of these guys under, you know, the current constraints and the Blackhawks can only retain uh, so many players salary. They can only, you know, accept so many deals. I think it's actually going to be right at four. So I'll take the under, but barely. That's exactly why I said it at four and a half, because I tend to lean that my answer would be four. And I know obviously it's all contingent on Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves and what they do. But let's just say even hypothetically, if Kane and Taves don't get moved and if they decide to stay, there are still tradable assets for the Blackhawks, whether it's Max Domi, Andreas Athanasiu, Sam Lafferty, Jake McCabe, like those four players could could honestly get moved yeah. at the deadline. And I think we've talked about it. We've kind of beat this to death about if the Blackhawks do move Jake McCabe, they can crunch that number and maybe eat half of the salary where it's 2 million. And then it becomes, he becomes a much more attractive piece. Or maybe if Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves don't get moved, well, then that's some salary retention that the Blackhawks can use on players like Max Domi and Andreas Athanasiu, where they can crunch that number to 1.5 a $1.5 million cap it and make them more attractive pieces. I, I did want to point out a couple other things. One was the guy that the uh, Canucks actually did retain some of Bo Horvat's salary, even though the money was fairly close to working out. I think it was less than like a million dollars ultimately that the Isles had to take onto their cap compared to what they had sent out. And they still had Vancouver retained salary. Like when you're talking about that little amount of money having to be retained to make some of these deals work, it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's a weird indictment of the way that this trade market is going to work out. And then speaking of, you know, retained salary and all that, if the Blackhawks do trade Kane and Tabes, you and Pat both brought it up on our last podcast there's a salary cap floor like the Blackhawks <laughs> have to meet the cap floor. And if you start trading away your McCabe's and your Domi's and your Athanasius, you're not going to be at the floor anymore. That's going to be a problem. So I think that also may put a little bit of an artificial limit on some of the player movement we could see from the Blackhawks. And I think that it may end up driving that number under four and a half. 
Yeah. So you brought up the, the Bo Horvat trade, the return. And I was trying to, I was looking for a question here that could maybe lump in what that return means for guys like Patrick Kane. So I'm going to, I'm just going to skip to our list, James, if you're following along to Jeffrey, which is later on, he says, is there really a market for Patrick Kane? He seems out of shape and his production is way down. I don't agree oh. with the out of shape part. Some, um, somebody somebody read uh, Travis Yost's recent post on uh, TSN where he was talking about how Patrick Kane's production has slipped and his defense has never been good. And so the question arises whether or not he's even worth uh, giving up a bunch of assets for. So I, I throw out that accusation that maybe, maybe he read that post, but I, I definitely found that one interesting. Yeah, maybe the out of shape comes into the the lingering injury that he's potentially been dealing with, but he he's most certainly not out of shape. So Jeffrey's question is, if you're not going to get a first or second round pick, why not let him just play out his contract and hit free agency next year? So let's just kind of ignore that part. And let's just talk about the, the potential market for Patrick Kane. We obviously know that, you know, there are some, there are many teams or a handful of teams that would be interested in Patrick Kane, but the number gets fewer and fewer when you when you factor in does this team have the assets for it do they have the cap room for it do they have the cap room to potentially resign Patrick Kane but also is this a team Patrick Kane would want to get traded for right so it's not it's it's not as complex or it's not as you know easy to figure out what the market is for Kane where I will say with the Bo Horvat trade that I think is interesting and you mentioned the salary retention so Bo Horvat's contract was $5.5 million. His cap hit was $5.5 million with Vancouver. Vancouver retained 25% of that salary. So now his cap hit is 4.125 um, yeah. for, for this season. And by the way, the New York Islanders are not even in a playoff spot. Like they're still fighting for uh, a wild card spot, right? Uh, to be fair, they are close. I think they the last I had checked, they were only like two points out of a wild card spot, but you are correct. They are not. But I think I think the the two teams that are in that wild card spot, as we record this on Wednesday, they have three games in hand on the Islanders. So it it's a lot of playing catch up. It's not as easy as, you know, they're two points behind. Like they they have some teams to maybe not jump, but they have they have to catch up um yeah. in some difficult ways. So just for people that may have missed it, the return was a top twelve protected first round pick. Um, a prospect in Atu Rati, and then obviously uh, Anthony Bovillier, um, who, for- by the way, carries a cap hit of four point one million dollars this season and next season. So the Islanders basically washed the money for Bo Horvat, and all they had to give up was a protected first round pick and a prospect. I mean, so, that's yeah. mm. <laughs> here's my here's my theory on this. I th- I think that the first round pick is is good for is good for Vancouver, especially in this year's draft. Right. Um, Atu Rati. I mean, he's, uh, he, he was a second round pick, so he's not some really high level prospect that is going to change the trajectory of Vancouver. So I think New York Islanders didn't really have an issue of getting, getting rid of him. I think where it gets interesting, James is because Bo Horvat's contract is now 4.1 or whatever, 4.125 million dollars. If they're getting inkling that they cannot re-sign Bo Horvat yep. or I guess I should say, and, or the Islanders are out of a playoff spot come yep. March 3rd. Now the Islanders can retain half of the 4.125 sure million dollars and they can flip Bo Horvat for a significantly larger return at a, what a two point 
whatever million dollar cap it while also potentially giving the other team that's acquiring Bo Horvat an an opportunity to sign him to a long-term extension that would make the package even juicier. So I think this is a smart move by the Islanders. Um, and I think that's why it's difficult to look at that trade and, and feel and, and think, well, how does that affect the trade market for Patrick Kane? I, I think it's just, it's, it's too different. Um, you know, we're comparing apples to oranges, Charlie, it still does. If he's going to be back on the trade market and he's going to be making roughly what Patrick Kane would theoretically be making if two teams ended up retaining salary on him. So I think that still leaves that in the ballpark, at least in warrants being part of the Kane discussion. I think that having to involve a second team or a third team, I should say in a Patrick Kane trade it's going to mess with the return quite a bit because you're going to be asking a team to take on, you know, 2.75 million or whatever the exact math would end up being. I think that that's the only way you can actually get Patrick Kane moved. And then you have to ask, do the Blackhawks have to give up additional assets in order to get rid of that Patrick Kane contract? I think the answer to that might actually be yes. And yeah, it's going to boost their return a little bit. But I, I'm not thinking that the Blackhawks are going to get. I, I think the question is correct. They're not. I don't think they're getting a first round pick for him unless they are willing to part with other assets to boost that return. Just because of the fact they are going to have to involve a third team and may even have to throw in some additional sweeteners to really get the deal across the finish line. I think if you do include a third party for a, the Patrick Kane contract, it is. It's difficult because like you said, you you now have to give up additional assets for that for the for that third party team to make it worthwhile for them, right? So I think that's where it makes it difficult. And I'm sure that way it would come from Chicago's side. Last thing on, on this back half of the question, if you're not gonna get a first round, first or second round pick, why not just let him play out his contract and hit free agency next year? Uh, it's really up to Patrick. Like if Patrick comes to the Blackhawks and says, Hey, I wanna I wanna get traded, you're not gonna say, Well, there's no market. We're not getting, or we're we're not going to get a first round pick. So you're staying. Like you're going to do right by the player. Right? Are you so. though? Like, do you have to? Like the Blackhawks would be like, sorry, dude, we literally cannot trade you to anybody. Like, oh, what's he going to do? Not resign here? Ooh, such well, okay. a threat. I guess. I guess the the flip side of that is if you don't trade him, um, you're really you're not getting anything for him, and there's a possibility that he walks. But two, if you don't trade him. And he does walk. Well, then you just had whatever a month and a half of Patrick Kane ruining your tank odds for Connor <laughs> Bedard. I mean, right? I, I I was just teasing. There are definitely um, reasons you don't want to piss off the legendary franchise player, and you know potentially screw up your tank and do all sorts of you know irreparable damage to your reputation, both among players and the league and among fans. I, I was being sarcastic. Hey, get a little go get a load of this next question. It comes from Yaroslav Spachek's Twitter account, but it's not actually Yaroslav oh, Spachek, unfortunately. I'm decidedly less excited. <laughs> this person asks, if all the chips fall in place as they are intended to, where the Blackhawks get bedard, the right players develop, the defense improves, what is the realistic timeline of the Hawks playing competitive hockey? It didn't take us too long after we got 88 back in 2007, yet people still say five years. I think my answer to that is when when Patrick King did get drafted first overall, it obviously came after the year Jonathan Taze was drafted number three overall. So they had him in the pipeline, but they also had a lot of players in 
whether it was with the Blackhawks or young players that were starting to break into the NHL. And like they had pieces around Kane and Taves in 2007, where it was Patrick Sharp was coming up and Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook and Nicholas Jalmerson. Like, oh, you mean like Hall of Famers and all star caliber players? And you had like seven of them all basically coming up at once. Right. And they made the big signing with Brian Campbell the, the year after. So like there were there were pieces where they were the trajectory was already on the upswing. It feels like this. The reason why I think a lot of people say you know, four to five years is because there is not a lot of the players that they have in the pipeline are really young. You know, Frank Nazar and Kevin Korchinski, Lucas Reichel is 20. Um, you know, but there are some, you know, Sam Renzel, like he got drafted with the Blackhawks. I, with the idea of thinking that he was about three years away. Right. So I think yeah. there's just a lot of growing that needs to happen for the Blackhawks to, to get competitive. I do think that the rebuild though gets sped up by at least a year if they do get Connor Bedard. Cause I do think it changes the way they, they approached approaching this, this coming off season. You know wow. What a, what a hot take to say that the rebuild would be accelerated if they got a generational player like Connor Bedard. I'm, well, no, I'm, just, I think I'm, changed, I'm giving you crap, Charlie. <laughs> I think um, it changes the, the <laughs> mindset though. And there's a question yeah. in here too. And maybe, maybe we, Maybe we hit on it. I can't remember as I'm looking off the top of my head, but if the Blackhawks, let's just say hypothetically, they do land Connor Bedard, they could do, they could basically start adding pieces as soon as this, this coming free agency into 2023 and, and say like, okay, we got the generational player. We, maybe they believe that Kevin Korchinski is the number one defenseman on the back end. Um, and, and the Blackhawks can really start adding pieces. Like I look at what Detroit did this, this past off season like they they signed David Perron to a two-year deal, 4.75. They signed Dominic Kubelik, two-year deal, Olimata, one-year deal, Vili Huso, three-year deal. The other the only two longer-term contracts were Ben Sherratt and Andrew Kopp uh, at four years and five years. But it, it wasn't like a six, seven, eight-year deal where you're really hamstringing yourself. You know, th- these are these are some quality pieces, then they got them at a at a pretty fair price. So I think if that's the case. If the Blackhawks do get Connor Bedard, I feel like they can really fill out their roster next year. If they don't get Connor Bedard, maybe even Adam Fantilli too. I think next year you is a year that the, the Blackhawks maybe bottom out again. And then the year after that is when you really start to make your, you know, your big free agent signings and, and filling out your roster. Um, so I think that's where, yeah. that's where I stand. Well, I think that, to answer the question initially, I think that the point you brought up about just the players that were coming up along with Kane in 07, I think that we have to we have to look at that as an anomaly. I don't think that that is going to be the case year in, year out. You're not going to be able to have that kind of an upswing in talent and performance on a regular basis, especially not with the prospect classes that the Blackhawks have right now. I think that it's going to take at least a few years for those guys to marinate. And also keep in mind, the Blackhawks had Keith and Seabrook and Jalmerson and Kane and Taves and Sharp, and they didn't make the playoffs in 2008. I'm just throwing that out there. So that was two years after they drafted Patrick Kane that they, you know, made the Western conference finals, et cetera. So I think that if they get Connor Bedard, I still think your best, your best case scenario, I think for making the postseason is year three of the rebuild. And that's a big question mark. I think it's more likely it's year four in total. So basically 
it would be three years post Bedard, I think, is when you can really start to anticipate being super competitive. Now, there are ways to accelerate that. I know that we've mentioned a certain center from Toronto that would sure look great in a Blackhawks uniform and would probably <laughs> help to accelerate this uh, this process along. What I will also say to your your point about free agency this offseason specifically is if the Blackhawks do land Connor Bedard, that the options that they would potentially have available to them in free agency, I'm not sure right now how big of a splash you're going to be able to make. I think that the Bruins are going to try to find a way to keep David Pasternak around. I don't think that he's going to hit free agency. And then once you get past him, your best option in terms of age and production is probably a Dylan Larkin type guy. And I don't know how big of a leap you take forward when Dylan Larkin, it would be your big free agent acquisition like that to me is a big question. So I think that the rookie year of Connor Bedard, even if they go out and make some splashes in free agency, I do not see them improving the team enough, both from outside and within with the prospects to make that playoff jump next season. But I think that if they then make more splashes in the year following and you get the development path, you think you're going to get with your Lucas Reichels, your Kevin Korchinski's and others. I, I think that p- perhaps year three of the rebuild. So the second year of a Connor Bedard, maybe then you can start to talk playoffs. And I think that is absolutely best case scenario with everybody panning out and the Blackhawks splashing money around in free agency. I, I don't think if the Blackhawks do get Connor Bedard, I, I think my approach would be different. Like I, I don't, I don't think I would be looking at the top end of the, the free agent class. I would be looking more at the, the players that in the range of what Detroit signed more of those veteran type guys on two, one, one or two year deals, because it's, Next year is not going to be a playoff type season or even. So are you talking, are you talking got like, let's talk specific names then. I think that you're probably talking guys for a one or a two year deal. What James Van Riemsdyk, I think would probably fit in that conversation. I think that uh, maybe a Milan Lucic, even though I wouldn't be super, you know, jazzed about that. You're talking maybe like your Eric Johnson's or your Jason Zucker's. Are those the kind of players you're talking about? Yeah, like he- here's the logic. Like you look at, you look at why Dominic Kubalik or Oli Mata or David Perron signed with Detroit. I, I think it was more they knew that they were going to get some playing time, and I think from Detroit's point of view you're bringing in these veterans that are surrounding your younger players like Dylan Larkin and like Lucas Raymond and Moritz Sider, obviously with the signing of Ben Chirot. Yeah, and it's giving them players to play with, but it's also because they are short-term contracts like Detroit, for example, they're not going to make the playoffs this year. At least I don't think so. Those are one or two year deals that you can maybe flip that are not going to be part of the future. Right? So you're kind of still, you're adding these pieces, not with the intention of making the playoffs. You're adding them because you want to put support around the younger players, but it's also not money that's tied up too long-term. That's going to really get in the way when you do have to start paying your younger players. So that's exactly the, the, the players that you mentioned, you know, th- those are the guys that, that I would consider in that range because, you know, you look at some of those players too, like Dominic Kubelik, like he was looking for an opportunity to play 
top six minutes, right? He wasn't yeah. on the first power play in Chicago. So he probably saw Detroit as an opportunity to say, okay, I can go get my points here. I can go get, I can play on the first power play unit. And Detroit probably doesn't view him as a long-term piece, but if they get the best out of him, they can then potentially flip him at the deadline, whether it's this year or next year. I will say just to kind of finish off this point, I know that I mentioned Dylan Larkin earlier. He's making about 6 million this season's averaging about a point a game. I wonder, I guess I wonder how much of a raise he's ultimately going to get. And I think that if you can get a player of his caliber for say seven or 8 million a season, especially going into a year where you're probably going to be, you know, having to really quest to even get to the cap floor. I think that maybe securing his services, a guy like that, who's only 26, 27 years old, I think it might be worth opening up the pocketbook a little bit prematurely to secure a young talent like that and at least give yourself another building block that's not going to necessarily break the bank. So I think that that's not, I think that you're, Strategy probably dovetails well to what the Blackhawks are thinking, but I also think there is an argument to be made to potentially add a player like that who's that young and who wouldn't be the most outrageous contract we've ever seen. I think I would explore that in 2024. And so let's get to Matt's question because, uh, by the way, a little shout out here. It says, James, I'm also a huge fan of the Chicago hockey pod days. So I have a question directly for you. James, you're feeling the love right now. Yeah. (laughs) He says, I hear the Austin Matthews joke on the podcast from you regarding 2024. If Bedard is what we think he is and he becomes a Hawk, is there a chance it actually happens? So it kind of goes back to what we're saying. Like if the Blackhawks do land Connor Bedard, I think next year is not an opportunity for them to start going, spending big via free agency and a long-term contract, yeah. but maybe 2024 is the kind of year where you can, maybe not shoot for the stars with Austin Matthews, but you can go get your Andrew cops and your, your Ben Sherratt's those guys that actually can play while also not, you know, not breaking the bank. So as far as Austin Matthew goes, Austin Matthews, what, what do you say about that? James, are you still sticking to it? I, you know what I am actually, here's (laughs) why, because I think that, we met, we keep mentioning this idea of potentially we want to do the rebuild right. We don't want to short circuit it, start throwing money around and, you know, try to get a bunch of high price guys to try to, like, you know, boost this thing along. If you get a guy like Connor Bedard in here, who's going to be on a rookie controlled contract for at least three seasons, and then you have the opportunity to bring in a generational scorer. I know that it's going to it's going to cost 14, 15 million dollars a season to sign Austin Matthews. I'm well aware of that. What I'm also well aware of, it is almost impossible to get a player of that caliber in free agency. And if you want this thing to really take off, you want to take advantage of the upswing of all of those prospects. There are times where you just have to swing for the fences. And I think that a player like Austin Matthews would be worth doing that for. Now, I'll say, of course, Toronto is going to try to re-sign. Well, they may try to re-sign him. I think that that it's better money that they will than they won't. But they also have Mitch Marner on an almost $11 million contract for the season after that. They've got John Tavares under contract for $11 million for the season after that. They've got Morgan Riley on a $7.5 million contract. They would also have to try to re-sign William Melander after that. They have a lot of guys who are going to be getting paid big, 
big bucks. And I think that there's going to have to be a shoe that's going to drop somewhere, right? And I'm not positive that that shoe will be Austin Matthews. I feel like they'll try to move heaven and earth to keep him. But if they don't, the Blackhawks owe it to themselves and to their prospects and their fans to try to swing for the fences and go for this pick. And so I know I kind of say it tongue in cheek, like, hey, Austin Matthews in 2024. I mean it. If that opportunity is there, I absolutely think that is the type of player that you break the bank for without question. I think the challenge with that, because because it seems fun in theory, right? The challenge with that is whatever the Austin Matthews contract is going to look like, let's just say it's going to be closer to 13, $14 million, right? You're basically, that is almost, I mean, that's a significant percentage of the salary cap for Chicago. And if they, if the Blackhawks do land Connor Bedard or Adam Fantilli, and they believe Kevin Korchinski is the number one guy moving forward. And Lucas Reichel turns out to be a top six player. And Frank Nazar is a legitimate top six winger center, which wherever the Blackhawks put him to, how are you going to pay all those guys? Like if you bring in a guy like Austin Matthews, where he's making maybe $15 million, you have basically, I, I don't know how you pay all of those young players because then, then the Blackhawks would become way too top heavy. Right. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying this in any way where I, I, if I'm the Blackhawks, I would not pursue and like check in on what he might be feeling, but it's just, it's really tough to logistically make, make that work when you do have some of those other other young guys. I did hear, I think it was Elliot Friedman was on a podcast a few days ago, whether I think it was, might've been a local one where he thinks that Austin Matthews is going to resign in Toronto, but he doesn't expect it to be the, the max term. Like he expected to maybe be a, I don't know, like whether it's like a four or five year deal. He, Ellie didn't say this. I don't, but I'm, not, but I'm not a huge fan of that idea. I feel like, you know, especially for a guy like Matthews, what's the incentive to sign for your, what it would be. It's like 27 through 31 seasons. Well, like, I think the incentive go get would the bag, be, dude. I think the incentive would be that you're basically tying or you would be tying yourself to a market. And what happens if by year two or three, like they're no, they're no, no good. Like what, what happens if you're, if you're in a situation like Edmonton where Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid, they have, they are not winning. Right. And it's like, they made the conference finals, Charlie. It's not like they're missing the playoffs every year. Well, they're, they're making the playoffs because of those two. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, you know, even, even like last year, Leon Dreisaitl was on one leg and Connor McDavid, like they were historically good in the playoffs last year that they just, you know, they, they have to do a better job. So anyway, so that's just like, whatever, if Austin Matthews does sign a, an extension or whatever, I, is it going to be an eight year turn? I don't know. I just, I want to throw out there that a, it'd be a seven year deal because he wouldn't be a Blackhawk at the time. And B right. ask the Tampa Bay lightning, how it works to sign every single one of your good players to long-term extensions. I think it's worked yeah, out but- fairly well for them. It's nice that they didn't have no state income tax, though, because no one is making more than nine point five million dollars <laughs> on the cap hit. All right, Governor Pritzker, you know what you need to do. We'll call it the Stanley Cup exception. Let's go. Hey, let's let's uh let's continue the theme of stuff that is probably not going to happen. But oh, let's just God. you're just such a buzzkill, dude. Jeez. Okay. Here, here's a question by Dom's on Twitter. 
I hope I pronounced that correctly. Any chance Alex Dabrinkit returns this offseason? Heard they haven't had contract talks between him and the Senators. Combine that with the first overall pick. Maybe Patrick Kane stays, if not traded at the deadline. What do you think about... So I, I don't think the Blackhawks... Okay, so let's put this into perspective. Alex, Alex Dabrinkit is a pending RFA. He's not a UFA. So I think if Alex Dabrinkit did not want to sign a long-term extension with Ottawa, it would probably be a one-year extension, and then it would take him to to free agency, right? It, he would maybe just accept his qualifying offer of whatever it is, $9, $10 million. And then he, he as a free agent in 2024, that's when he can maybe explore his options externally. 2024. James, the Blackhawks don't get Austin Matthews. <laughs> would you? Would you? Would you look to re-sign Alex to bring it? Um, I mentioned that uh, Austin Matthews is a generational talent, um, just one of the best pure goal scorers we've seen in many, many years. Uh, Alex to bring it. Dead FT had two forty goal seasons with the Blackhawks. He has 17 goals with the Senators this year. I I don't think that's the type of player that you're going to break the bank for. As much as I love Alex DeBrincat, and I do, I just think that the, I think a winger, that's not where I'm focusing. I don't know. Like, I, I I I just, I, 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 I question how much money he's going to ultimately get. I'm not positive it would be the best investment for the Blackhawks to do that. Now, if he makes less than what I would anticipate he would make, I think that, you know, he kicked the tires on it or whatever. But I would be extremely hesitant like you are to give up assets now to get him back, which you would have to do if he's an RFA. Um, but even after that, like I I'm, I'm not sold on giving him like a seven year deal because you have, as you said, so many other holes that you'll still need to fill on this roster, both up the middle and in net and everywhere else, apparently. I, I just think that the Debrinket thing, like you have to hope that some of your forwards and wingers that you're going to be drafting are going to pan out. And I think that investing that money in a pure winger, probably not the best path forward for the Blackhawks. But I am curious what you have to say about that. I, I would consider it if the seven-year contract w- is a way for them to get the AAV down a little bit because then by in between year four to seven, the salary cap will have significantly increased. In will theory. it though? Yeah. You know, they keep saying that. And b- listen, if we're talking about year four or five, especially if the contract gets signed in 2024, you know, year year four and five would be 2028, 2029. So like in theory, the salary cap will be significantly increased um, by that point. I see what you mean, though, of not wanting to build through the wing, right? The only the only wingers you really want to build uh, if you're if you're building a team scrim, from scratch are guys like Patrick Kane or Artemi Panarin, guys that actually drive play. And it does not matter who the center is. Is Alex to bring it that guy? Um, I don't think so, but. He's also a player that, like you brought up his 17 goals with Ottawa this season. I think that's deceiving. I actually think he's, his goals, uh, ex- his expected goals is actually much higher. And the fact that he's actually producing offensively in the assist category too makes me feel like he, yeah. he's actually he's actually 
putting up some decent points and that his value to Patrick Kane should not have been understated. Like a lot of people say, oh, you know, DeBrinkett was made by Patrick Kane. Like I, Patrick, look at Patrick Kane's numbers. Like he's missing DeBrinkett too, right? Yeah. So I think um, it, it's interesting though because it, it might be dependent on whether Patrick Kane is here. You know, like if if Patrick Kane is still here and he's playing at a high level, like I could see Alex wanting to come back and if if he wants to raise his family here in Chicago because this is what he liked, like maybe, but I don't know if it's a pipe dream or if it's, you know, a, a, a realistic possibility for him to really want to explore his opportunities in 2024 if he does resign on a one-year deal and takes it to free agency. Yeah, I, I just also, think it was funny. It was yeah. funny, James. I want to poke holes really quick in, in your thing. It was funny sure. that you said you didn't want to you didn't want to commit. And maybe maybe you're saying because he plays wing and not center, but you didn't want to commit that much money to debrink it, whatever that contract is. But you were willing to go there. You were go, willing to go to like 14, 15 million for Austin Matthews. Allow me to reiterate Austin Matthews, center, generational. generational player, Alex Debrinkit, <laughs> good winger, not generational player. I rest my case. Fair, fair point. Um, all right. I was going to, I'm looking at the questions here. We've hopped all over and I'm wondering where we, oh, okay. Let's, let's get to here. Blackhawk up our friends over there. Uh, out of all the Blackhawks defense prospects, other than Kevin Korchinski, which has the highest ceiling at the NHL level. And he lists off Ethan Del Mastro, Alex Vlasic, Isaac Phillips, San Renzel, oh, wow. Nolan Allen, Philip Ruse, Wyatt Kaiser, Jacob Galvis or Alec Regula dot, dot, dot. So that's a good question. Um, I wonder if the highest ceiling from that group is Sam Renzel because it, it it does feel like he, he can be a, a total package kind of player. The problem is he is, he like, he was, he like just graduated high school when the Blackhawks drafted him. So he is, he's going to take a while to, uh, to develop. I think, Ethan Del Mastro, like he had a really strong showing, but I, I still don't think he's like a, a, a he changes life for you. Um, so I'm going to go with Sam Renzel as having the highest ceiling out of all those players. I think you you attacked this question precisely the way that I did, where I instantly thought Ethan Del Mastro and Nolan Allen um, when I saw it, but then I was thinking, are their ceilings actually higher, or am I thinking about? which one of them I think is most likely to pan out and be a successful NHLer, because those are technically two different questions. And I think that Nolan Allen has shown a lot this season. He's really risen a lot in the eyes of scouts and prospect rankers. And I think with really good reason. And I think that Ethan Del Mastro really showed a lot in the world junior championships. And I think that his stock is also up, but I would, I I'm inclined to agree with you where I think that, Rinzel just screams to me that he has that kind of boomer bust potential that he could be, you know, a top two defenseman if everything breaks his way. Like he's got so many awesome traits and skills, but he has such a long way to get there. I definitely I agree with you that if we're talking highest ceiling, you have to say him because the range is so wide of potential outcomes for him. Whereas I think with Del Mastro and Allen, I think that both have really good shots at being solid NHLers. I'm just not positive that either one of them could take the step beyond that solid level. Right. And you look at Sam Renzel too, six foot four, 176, 176 pounds, 
puck moving type defender and he's a right-handed shot. Like those are all the things that you would love in a defenseman that could really, yep. you know, reach that potential at the NHL ceiling. I will say this. I, I talked to a, a Blackhawk source a, a while ago and he felt that the Nolan Allen could his ceiling ceiling, let's just say is, is a Nicholas Jalmerson type player. Right. Like not, not to say that he's going to be that kind of player at the NHL level, but he, that's what his ceiling is. So it's hard to, I guess, weigh when you're talking about defensive defenseman ceilings versus offensive, offensive defenseman ceilings. Uh, but I just want to throw that out there. Um, last one here. I was going to get to, to Landon's question. He asked, hi guys, what, what could be some of the best UFAs the Blackhawks could sign if the Blackhawks get Connor Bedard uh, this year, but we—I feel like we already answered that. So, uh, Landon, hope we answered your question in the previous one. So, I'm going to move to Jake. Max Domi has really impressed me this season so far. Think the Blackhawks will keep him around for a while? Question mark. Mm. My feeling has always been if Max Domi loves it in Chicago and he wants to be around for you know four or five years, his. He could be an attractive piece for a lot of teams at the trade deadline. So I think maybe you work out an under the table agreement with him and say, listen, here's a potential contract that it would look like if you were to resign here. We got to flip you for assets, though. And then let's come talk, you know, July 1st again, um, because he doesn't have a no movement clause. He doesn't have any no trade protection. So if he really loves it in Chicago and he wants to make it a home here, tell him to keep his home in Chicago and they'll revisit in a few more months after he potentially goes and wins a cup somewhere. Yeah, I, I think I brought up on the episode last one of our previous episodes that his situation would remind me of a an NFL head coaching candidate where you basically don't want to let them get out the door without agreeing to a contract with you. And I think that even with a under the table agreement, we can have a you know a CBA expert on to ascertain whether or not that's something that ever actually happens, or if NHL rules prohibit you know Kyle Davidson from even like broaching that subject. I, well, maybe I think, not a handshake agreement, but maybe like a hey, if you were if you wanted to be here, what could that potential contract look like? And if you have like the framework maybe in your mind, then it would be like okay, like let's revisit because that would work for you know that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but I, I just I think I think giving him that opportunity to go like play with another team, get used to another culture, potentially hit free agency. I think that a lot of things can change in the interim and so I think that if you're if he's serious about being here and you're serious about being interested that he's being in being here, what what asset do you think the Blackhawks would get for a Max Domi that would necessarily preclude them from just signing him to an extension right this second. Like, I I don't know what the price would be on a guy like him. Like, what would what would keep you from doing that? Like, if it's a, th- you know, a third-round pick and a prospect, eh, I'd rather sign the guy that wants to be here and I know I want if that's going to be the price. Now, if you're talking, you know, higher than that, yeah, I'm willing to, you know, ship him out and get that asset. But I just think that if you're talking like kind of a middling return for a guy like that and, you know, after the Bo Horvat trade, who the hell knows what a middling or a good return is going to be in this market. I just I don't see the logic in letting him walk out and like relying on kind of, as you said, like the handshake agreement. I'd rather just get the deal done if he really wants to be here and the Blackhawks really want him. Well, I let's just say hypothetically the market right now for Max Domi at current value of his three million dollar cap it is a second round pick and maybe just like a middle to your prospect. 
you can use that second round pick to to package with maybe another first round pick and move up in the draft. You know, like so it's not just the Blackhawks making that pick with the second round in this you know, economy. Would, I don't know, Charlie. <laughs> well, in this draft, though, in this draft, it would be really valuable. Well, it'd be, Blackhawks... it'd be valuable to the Blackhawks. It'd also be valuable to the team they're trying to trade up with. Right. But I don't think the team they would trade with would really care about that second round pick if they're really going for a Stanley Cup and Max Domi can be a potential piece for them moving well, forward. Well, I meant packaging it with another pick to move up into the first round. I think that the team that you would be trading with in the first round would value their pick quite a bit, and I'm not sure that would get it done. Or maybe it's maybe it's you have an additional second round pick that you can move up a few more spots to go get the guy that you want in the early second round, you know, that could technically be like a late second or a late first round pick in this year's draft. So it is interesting. I think it also depends James on, we talked about Patrick Kane, John and the Taves. Like if they do stick around here beyond the March 3rd trade deadline, and that means the Blackhawks would have three opportunity or three players up to three players to retain salary on. I think you absolutely in that scenario. Like I think that that drastically improves the chances that Domi leaves. I think that if they end up trading Kane and Tabes and you're only going to have that one spot left to potentially retain some salary, I think that that is something that you can then explore. Like, Hey, why don't, instead of trading you, you want to stay? How much money would it take to make that happen? Right. All right, I was going to uh, finish with this question. I forgot to include this in the Google Doc. It comes from uh, Charlie Romeliotis. He <laughs> asks, James, what's your favorite skills competition event in the NHL All-Star Weekend? So do we, we, is this the new ones or are we talking about the existing, uh, so the existing it, challenges? It's funny because I got this email, let's see, eight days ago of what the events were going to be. And I have not read them yet. I've. I've obviously heard about the the splash shot and the pitch and puck and the the tendy tandem, but I have not <laughs> I, I have not researched what exactly is like what are these things going to look like. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure what to expect. Um, I'll just say my favorite event over the years has been just the accuracy shooting. Yeah, but I I was really disappointed when there was that brief period where they moved from the styrofoam targets to the whatever the heck they had just the virtual or the digital thing i at some i think leon dreisaitl once did it and it wasn't registering it was so it was so so annoying and stupid yes i think that i agree with you by the way that's my favorite one i think the speed skating is always interesting but it's kind of uh lost its luster for me over the years just because it's like oh dude skating in a circle ooh, so cool <laughs> i i think the accuracy is the is really cool i always enjoyed like when like al mcginnis and guys like that were in the hardest shot competition and like your zidane charas but i i'm not as thrilled with that anymore so i think that the accuracy shooting is where it's at for the uh the listeners who are not familiar since they're in South Beach this year, the NHL has decided they're adding a few additional events to the mix. The splash shot from what Charlie and I can figure out is on the beach. They have to hit players have to hit targets with pucks and then they have to try to hit like a dunk tank target to knock their opponent into the dunk tank. And whoever does it first apparently wins that to me 
sounds interesting and there are stakes there i'm sure you could you know up the stakes a little bit like put sharks in the water or whatever but i don't think the nhlpa would be behind that but it still sounds like an interesting idea the pitch and puck however okay, yeah, charlie that, let's get to this that is one. something you and i could potentially try to do and i think would be utterly hilarious so it says the winner of the pitch and puck so it basically says using a combination of hockey and golf shots Six NHL All-Stars will play a par four featuring an island green. The lowest score wins the, the pitch and puck. And it says the winner, um, the player who successfully sinks the puck slash ball in the hole with the fewest shots. If in a tie situation at the completion of the event, there is a tie. The longest drive will determine the winger. <laughs> what in the world is this going to, are they literally going to play golf on a golf course with a hockey stick and just start firing? But like, that's what I've been trying to figure out for days. The NHL has been kind of mum about it. I personally think that what should happen is whatever the NHL ends up doing. I think you and I need to go try to replicate it somewhere. What do you think? I, I really agree. I, where, who do you think, which, who do you think would allow us to do that? Do we, we know actually... any? Do we know anybody that runs a golf course? Like, do you think Pat Boyle has some pull at a club that he could make this happen? <laughs> you know what's funny? Like, could you imagine us doing? Could you imagine us doing this and we bring like an NBC camera for for us and we just? Why? Do our own? Why else would we do it? We should do it. We yes. should. We should. We should do it. Yeah, Lisa Baldy, get her on the phone right now. She <laughs> needs to approve this. I'm very much looking forward to uh to how this is gonna play out i will say this james too though the 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 breakaway challenge that used to get really stale and guys weren't into it last year when trevor zegris and jack hughes and alex to they really got into it mm-hmm. that that made a comeback last season i hope that continues again this year because i like when actually when players actually really get into it because it yeah. makes it more fun for everyone so and we get to we'll see, see Roberto Luongo, who has the most fascinating like player arc in history where everybody hated him. And now everybody loves him. I, I freaking yeah. love Roberto Luongo so much. And he will be participating in a NHL all-star weekend shenanigans. Also, I like that Connor McDavid is not doing the fastest skater. I don't know if you saw that the oh. guy's been doing it for, yeah. for seven straight years. The poor guy never gets to try anything different so i like that he's doing the accuracy shooting i also want to get him out on the golf course what are y'all doing i i james i was gonna say i i want to i i'm vouching for more players to participate in more or to participate in more things like i kind of hate when Connor mcdavid is done with the fastest skater and then it's like he's done for the day i i i want i want to see him in all the drills like i want to see more players in more drills and i know that's doesn't sound feasible because you just, you got to kind of diversify, but I want to see a random fan from the audience. Try each of the events. Oh God. Showcase how hard these actually are because the players make so many of them look so easy. Can you imagine like, you know, Frank from section one Oh two, trying the hardest (laughs) shot competition. Ratings gold. Registers at 57.3 miles per hour. Ratings gold. You guys, I have just saved hockey. Maybe an emergency goaltender, uh, an e-bug situation. Get Scott Foster out there. Actually, get Scott Foster, the NBA referee, to do it. It'd be even funnier. I love it. James, good stuff. When we release this, I will hopefully be by a pool, getting a little tan on. Um, recharge for the second half of the year when as soon as we get back 
and the Blackhawks get back to action, it feels like the news cycle is really going to ramp up because it'll basically be a month away from the trade deadline. So let's get our rest and uh, come back on the other end, feeling recharged to uh, to cover a, a busy trade deadline season for the Blackhawks. Amen, buddy. Good talking to you today. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Blackhawks Talk Podcast. For James, Charlie, don't forget to review us, rate us, and subscribe, and we will catch you on the other side of the All-Star break.